0: Welcome to the Middleman Podcast. The following is a conversation with my dad, Kevin O'Shaughnessy. He worked in the financial industry for 30 years, finally leaving his job in 2020 as a commodity broker to start his own business. It is nice to hear his perspective on some pivotal moments in the history of finance, like the tech boom in the late 90s, the financial crisis in 2008, and eventually we make our way home to speaking about drugs, marriage having children. This is my very first podcast, so please bear with me. I will try to stop saying the word um, and I will continue to try to become more articulate. As you might notice, I mess up the very first question that I read, but the conversation goes on well, and I'm glad I had it. Here is my conversation with my dad. Mm-hmm. okay anyway um you worked on and around and around wall street for a while um i'm sure you're familiar with the movie american psycho yes without naming names have you ever met someone who was a psychopath and maybe can you recall a story about that person
1: oh absolutely i've definitely met a, a few of those types of characters but uh, one in particular was actually a boss of mine and uh he would um he he would just literally go crazy he would he would quiz these guys that are you know that we worked with on like what was on the front page of the business section of the wall street journal and if like they didn't know he would you know send them to go jog around the block for a few times and you know he would come back and make make them rate the girls that were up front in our in our secretarial uh, area so you know just very very offbeat horrible things
0: he made them run around the block in their Business?
1: In their suits, yes. Yeah. So they'd have to go outside if they didn't know the answer. And Of course, it was all, all silly because at this point, nobody's really ever reading the paper. But he was this old school guy and just very, very narcissistic, you know, huge issues. Oh, man. I'm not sure he actually killed anybody, though. So. Oh,
0: well, did he do well?
1: He did pretty well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, sure, he did actually they, pretty well.
0: They tend to do well. Um, on a more serious note, did you ever actually go to work at an office on Wall Street? Um, what is Wall Street? What year was it, and what was it like? Well,
1: I didn't actually ever work on Wall Street. I mean, they call it Wall Street because that's, you know, you know uh, the New York Stock Exchange is on the corner of Wall Street and, and Broad, I think it is. So that sort of became the you know, the epicenter of the finance world in Lower Manhattan. Uh, for me, my actually my first job, interestingly enough, uh, you know, and on a serious note, was on the 107th floor of World Trade Center, um, Tower Two. Uh, that was for Lehman Brothers, and um, luckily, I was what not year was that? I first started there. That was in 1988, and I worked there for probably a year um, as I was finishing school. And then my first job after that was on uh, was for Morgan Guarantee Trust, now known as JPMorgan Chase. And uh, that was over on West Broadway, 30 West Broadway. So Mm -hmm. that was just also though right next to the World Trade Center.
0: So there there was probably a lot of um, psychopaths in those buildings.
1: (laughs) I just think the industry itself, regardless of the building, the industry itself kind of lends itself to uh, some eclectic personalities, I guess you might say.
0: And it kind of rewards them sometimes for their uh, destructiveness.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously there was, you know, most of the guys in that type of industry, they have a problem with moderation on, on all levels. And, you know, one of them is a good thing, which is, you know, hard work and money. And then the other thing sometimes can be bad, which leads to, uh, you know, some, some possible drugs and drinking too much.
0: Yeah. So that was, uh, that was actually my next question. What role do drugs play in the financial industry or did they, when you were there?
1: Well, I'd, I'd like to say or I'd hope, I think, that they play a lesser role at this time. Um, they were, you know, a minor part, I guess, of the role of what I saw going around. Uh, but just prior to me starting, you know, after after the Morgan Guarantee job, I went to work for a company called Bankers Trust, which doesn't exist anymore. And the guys there, uh, they were, you know, the epitome of the 80s, right? So they would tell me the stories, stories of, um, you know, long limousines and uh, cocaine and, and hookers all, you know, you know, every every Thursday and Friday night, it was lined up.
0: So you were past the crazy 80s part.
1: Yeah, I, I started in the 90s there at Bankers Trust. So, I mean, yeah, the early 80s, I think, was the time where guys were still smoking on the trading floors, you mm. know, upstairs. So, and, and that included cigars. And, you know, women, if they complained, were told to just shut the F up, basically. So mm. that was it.
0: And so nobody was smoking inside in the '90s.
1: Correct. When I started, uh, yeah, I don't know when they actually it may have stopped a couple years before. But I when I worked to work at Banker's Trust on the on the first trading floor, I worked on that was in 1990, and it was pretty pretty clean cut, you know. But great perk was you in the morning you'd order breakfast and you could order whatever you want. And then around 30, 12 o'clock, these guys would roll up with all these big trays, and you got free free lunch. Oh, that's nice.
0: Um, Moving on, what is your favorite part about America?
1: My favorite part about America is the ability, and I know this may sound, I don't know, trite or people say, oh, silly. But I, I do believe that you, you can be or do anything in this country. And to me, that's amazing. You know, we, wore, you know, we won the birth lottery by being here in the United States and having the ability to truly just, if you know, whatever you want to work for, whatever job you want to get, it's just up to you.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's a lot to complain about as far as like the um, the Wall Street thing with the psychopaths and the cocaine and the terribleness. But uh, it's worth noting that it wouldn't really be possible anywhere else. Um, and there's a lot of prosperity and wealth that comes from that wealth, and it's a lot of the money that is being made there is used to fund more things, which we get to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, say what you want about it, but it's, it's, you know, it's part of a free, you know, capitalist economy. You, you know, you, you need it. Unfortunately, you know, anytime you set something like that up, you're not going to, you can't foresee all the bad things that are going to come of it, right? You can't, you know all the problems that you know, you know, inevitably, you know, the power and the money that it brings, you know, I used to tell a lot of people, it's funny, the, there was a direct correlation between, you know, how quickly you made your money and how big of an asshole you were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the sooner you made a lot of money, the bigger asshole you are.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of, um, things to complain about with that incentive structure, but, um, is possible that that's the best way to get things done? Is to have all the assholes do the work for you.
1: <laughs> well, the problem with that too, too is in that structure. Uh, a lot of times, the manager, or you know, you get promoted, you become senior manager. The more money you make, and a lot of times that person really isn't the best suited for management. He's not really the one who's going to lead the team. He's really concerned about himself.
0: They have the best money making skills, and those skills don't always translate to people helping
1: exactly you know a lot of times guys uh, you know you, they didn't if some if they thought someone else was smart and good they didn't really want them around because they were they were more intimidated by it they didn't want anybody taking over whereas i think a smart manager you know surrounds himself with the with good smart people
0: yeah um this is going to be one of those times where it comes off beat could you turn that um light on because it's connected to my uh, charger here there we go
1: <laughs> I'm not hearing you in my headphones. Am I supposed to?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. can you not? No. Okay. Um there you go. Now here. Oh, uh, okay. I just turned myself up a little bit. Okay. So, um swishing sides a little bit here. Um currently the crypto market is going through a bit of a boom. I wrote these questions um a little <laughs> while ago
1: before it's all Yeah. Done. Gotcha.
0: having a little bit of a sell-off, but um uh, not too long ago, we had a kind of boom in the tech sector. Can you recall what the dot-com boom was like? And maybe uh, what did you hear around you as far as predictions about where the Internet would go compared to what it actually was now?
1: Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question.
0: Actually, and maybe if you could uh, give like an overview of what it was.
1: So what, what it was uh, was an inflated sense uh, of these businesses, right? No one really, truly knew which one was going to be the one to, to take, you know, take, uh, you know, a certain thing. You know, obviously the Googles of the world, you, you knew that was going to be big, just maybe not how big. But there were so many what they call these dot com companies that had this this little piece of software or some idea that they sold to investors, and the inflated prices came off the back. Of what they considered was going to be this tremendous growth. So, you know, today a company might, you know, try, you know, trade it like eight, nine times earnings or something like that next year's earnings. It's basic. Commerce had no revenue whatsoever. And they were based on potential possible earnings two, three, sometimes even five years down the line. And what years is this? This again was in, in um, probably the later 90s, right? So, 98, I guess. 90, yeah, I think. The height of it, I think, was around 97, 98. And then, obviously, the, you know, the bust kind of happened, 99, um, when the, NAS, you know, the NASDAQ basically was cut in half. But,
0: so these people, pre-internet, more or less, are trying to put a number on where the internet is going and how profitable it is on companies that have never existed before.
1: Correct. All right. I mean, basically, there was I don't know if you recall, it still exists, this company called Red Hat. And Red Hat basically had an open source software. And they felt mm-hmm. that the, the you know, it was called Linux, I guess, at the time. And they felt that they were going to crush Microsoft. They were like, okay, you know what? Microsoft's making all this money. We're going to have this open source software where, you know, all the users and all the world, you know, are going to be able to continually make it better. And this is going to be worth, you know, trillions. And, you know, they just never were able to crush Microsoft.
0: And so what part about that and the whole speculation prospect turned it into a bubble and a boom before that.
1: Well, the bubble happens because you know of uh, you know if you remember the term irrational exuberance, and that was yeah from uh, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, <laughs> coined that phrase of irrational exuberance, and so we, what you saw happen was guys were you know where I worked trading stocks, day trading stocks during the workday. So as they were working, they were also trading these stocks and obviously buying you know buying them mostly. And so they were making, some of these guys making, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year. We're making that much or more on the side business of trading these stocks. So
0: what is the occupation of these people that you're talking about?
1: We were brokers. So at that time, we were institutional commodities brokers, you know, all different uh, types of...
0: And so they're... Shuffling these stocks for their clients and also buying them for themselves.
1: We no, we didn't. Uh, we weren't involved in the stock market, me per, in particular. But yeah, I would say probably have others. But in the meantime, we were say brokering interest rate options or swaps or something. But throughout the day, if there's you know small, slow time or in the morning, you'd put your orders in and buy these stocks and you'd sell them. But to me, the 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 moment I knew there was this was irrational and there would be a bust was the day uh, I spoke to my mom. And she's like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to open up a stock trading account." And I was like, "What?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, we, you know, with that, and I've got a couple thousand dollars. Of, you know, you know, it's, everybody's making money on these stocks." And I knew at that moment, right there, I'm like, "Okay, these are overbought."
0: And so, what about that anecdote made you realize that there was a problem?
1: But, well, because you know, retail's always the last to know. The retail investor, the guy who's not really sitting there. Uh, doing the work on what this company is actually worth. If they're they're just buying that irrational exuberance, they're basically just buying the momentum, buying the excitement. And right there, they're usually the ones left holding the bag.
0: And so if you thought that if the good news reached, by, by the time the good news reached the retail investors, the, uh, what would I say, um, institutional investors uh, have already taken up everything that they're, they've sort of already, uh, drained everything for what it's worth. And maybe they've realized what's not so good about it at that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, at that point they've realized institutional investors now are happy to sell to mom and pops and all these guys that are, you know, coming in on the sideline and you know, thinking, Oh, I got to get involved. And they're, you know, so they, they were happy to sell the stock.
0: That's an exit route for them. Yes. Um, and so how bad was that crash? What happened? Was it actually a crash? Was it a bubble that burst? What happened when it fell?
1: I, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't call that the, the crash. I mean, certainly it was. It was a tech bust, I guess. Uh, you know, people lost money. Obviously, yeah, greatly. But I, I wouldn't consider that one of the great stock market you know crashes of of, of our time or my memories, anyway. Uh, you know, because at the time, it was it was truly more the the, the smaller investor who got hurt. It wasn't, Uh you know, it didn't bring down the Bear Stearns and the Morgan Guarantees. It brought down, uh, you know, lawyers and attorneys and guys who basically thought they were, you know, they were smart.
0: And so it was just people making silly decisions on an Internet that they thought would happen and a different Internet happened, so they didn't make the money.
1: Right. Well, you know, the problem is you're betting on, you know, maybe 50 different companies that do similar things. Uh, Which one's going to be the one to come out of it, right? And and so you're going to lose money at forty nine and make one, you know, one. Right.
0: And nobody knows how big the market's going to be and how many companies are going to exist in that profitable part. Um, What did people think, just generally, like about what the internet was going to become?
1: I think it was really hard to say. A lot of people, I I think, didn't really know. And initially, it, it was just. The excitement of uh, almost communication, right? I mean, no one really foresaw the social media as it is today. They saw it more as a, you know, a space for, you know, email, uh, quick communication, uh, advertising, perhaps, um, you know, searching, you know, old facts and sports figures, right? I don't think we really ever foresaw the level of what you see today on. You know, TikTok and Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram, I, I, you know, that wasn't quite around yet.
0: So they saw it more as like a library than a town hall, town square. Exactly. Much more
1: of a reference place than mm-hmm. anywhere else, you know, with, with room for advertising. I think that was big. And, and e-commerce even started. You had, you know, the company Etsy, uh, you know, which was basically helped all those mom and pops that, you know, that were making little trinkets in their garage. You know, they had a forum to sell them now.
0: Is that still around?
1: Yeah, still exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Etsy's big. Yeah, I mean, but Etsy's just a web page for you know, it's a similar to almost like an eBay, right? You, you can be an eBay seller. You know, even Amazon. There's there's private companies that sell under the Amazon umbrella.
0: Right. Okay, so um, that happened when uh, I was not alive. Um, <laughs> you, were, you were you
1: were you were a thought though. You were almost there.
0: I was barely there. Um, and now, moving on to something that I have a little bit more knowledge about, um, and that some people. Listening to this might, um, so maybe you could just breeze through it really quick. What happened during the 2008 housing crisis? Um, did you think the world was going to end?
1: I I, I never think the world's going to end. I'm I'm more of an optimist. But what happened during that housing crisis is, uh, which which makes it different from sort of the the you know the boom we're seeing in real t- real estate today. The difference was the very very smart Wall Street guys came up with mortgage products that enabled a person to purchase. A home um, that would normally not be in their price range so they were able to pay several hundred thousand dollars more because they had a teaser rate that they got involved in that may also include you know what uh, they would call balloon payment that might come due in a couple years
0: so their payments initially were very very low and then a balloon payment is uh, sort of like your last payment that was going to happen later but it was uh, an, an exorbitant amount of money and they took advantage of people by sort of hiding this balloon payment they
1: didn't hide them, but what they did is they, you know, because the market continued to rise, right? So if the market was going up 10, 15, sometimes 20% a year on your home, what they did is they, they told people, hey, don't worry about that balloon payment because what we're going to do is we're going to refinance you in three years or five years' time. And you're going to have two, 300000 extra in equity in your home. So it won't be a big deal. We're going to refinance you. We'll take care of that balloon payment. Well, don't worry.
0: How much of that was a lie? I would
1: say, you know, most of it, 80% of it, because there's there's no way that they could have believed that housing bubble would continue. You know, it just didn't make sense.
0: So before these, um, their CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, before these happened, there was already a a, a bit of an accelerated rise in, in housing prices before that happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But, and then you, you, you mentioned those CDOs, I mean, that's one of the first time that, that was another product, you know, designed basically as insurance against bad loans. Right. So guys,
0: there was a, just cause I saw the big short, there's a bunch of loans in a package, right. And then some of them are bad and some of them are good. But then what happened was they kept selling the CDOs and and eventually almost all of them were bad. And they knew that. Yeah.
1: They they knew that they weren't going to be paid. And but they, you know what they still continue to sell them, and you know, and and people thought like, oh, they, they structured them basically. You know, as you know, there's a rating right on 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 debt, and they structured them as if these were you know A or B type of ratings, whereas they were junk, yeah. and they should have been sold as such, but they weren't. And you know, so when everything came due, and they, you know, they, there was it was a, it was like a it was like a triple whammy on things.
0: So there was an initial sort of rise in the housing market and then it sounds like this is another uh episode of um the boom reaching the the retailers as in like the the lower income people who figured out how to get uh who received this like um opportunity to buy out of their price range is this like a similar thing where like the retail guy is always the last to know
1: uh, exactly because we you saw people leave their job like a normal job and they're like well i'm going to be uh, you know, I'm going to own real estate. I'm going to either flip houses or I'm going to purchase them. I'm going to rent them out. Like you know, because it, it you know became again. It comes down to people's. You know, everybody thinks there's an easy way or a quick way to make a buck, and there's somebody on Wall Street uh, happy to, to to facilitate that for you.
0: So you say you're an optimist, but at the same time, you're saying that when you see people, maybe not every time, but when you see people sort of flocking to this new thing, uh, there's a bit of a red flag that comes up, and you go, wait. Maybe the Wall Street guys are screwing you here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you, you have to, when someone's telling you how great something is, you have to take it from where it's coming and you have to know. So, like in that case I talked about earlier, you know, when my mom was like, hey, I want to get involved. And you know your mom has no idea about yeah. the tech. So, you know, that person's purchasing, you know, based on momentum. And, and, and again, so when a guy used to be an insurance salesman and he quit his job and now he's flipping houses, uh, I don't want to be flipping houses.
0: Yeah, that might be a bad time. Moving on, um, what is natural gas?
1: Natural gas is, is, a, is a fossil fuel, obviously, and um, it's been discovered. It really was discovered more off the back of crude oil. Anytime you drill for crude oil, you're going to get a certain amount of natural gas as well, and, and vice versa. When they drill now for natural gas, you get a little bit of crude oil as well.
0: So there's oil and there's gas in the ground, and they're two different things.
1: Exactly. Very, very different things. One is obviously, a, you know, a liquid. So, you know, crude oil comes out as that black murky stuff you see, you know, in the old movies. Okay. And uh, natural gas is, is a is, you know, is a gas. And there's there's also probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 other distillates that'll come out of that type of drilling, right? So, you know, but a lot of times they were, you know, you've heard of like butane and you know, different things yeah. like that. So, um, so, it's called NGLs. And you know so there's there's plenty of other like kind of smaller and minor gases but natural gas uh, you know became very very popular because when it is burned it's much cleaner than than a crude oil So it became popular for power plants as people worried about, more and more worried about the nuclear side of things, which, by the way, I personally is, I think, you know, very, very efficient and and very, it's just the problem with the waste, right? When the, when the nuclear power plant becomes inoperable, what do we do with all that waste? But Mm -hmm. regardless, natural gas became, you know, the alternative clean uh, idea of of burning fossil fuels.
0: So I'm trying to imagine the ground. There's a... uh There's bedrock, right, and sometimes it's under Texas, sometimes it's under the Gulf of Mexico or other places. And underneath the bedrock, there's um, a sort of cavity in the rock, and there's some combination of liquid, oil, natural gas, and distillates, and each of those are sold separately and Uh, drilled for separately.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, ideally, I... I you know, I'd have to double check, but most of it started from drilling for oil. You know, oil was liquid gold, right? And right. Because that was that was discovered first. And a lot of times, like I said, natural gas just became part of that. And that would just get burnt off or lost, you know, for a long time. Nobody even cared about these other distillates until they realized they could utilize them, mm. um, you know, by burning and creating turbine. And that's how they create, you know, the power. So, you know, you know, when you look way back, so initially what the first thing that they found was coal, right? So coal was the mm. initial... Um, fuel used to burn for power plants. You know, then, now they, then they discovered crude oil, and they didn't really use that as much. That's like the last possible thing you're going to use on a, on a power plant because it's very, very expensive to, to use. But then when they finally realized, hey, there's these other things coming out of the ground with our crude oil, um, let's use them. And so natural gas became you know, very, very popular because there was so much of it. And then I don't know if you've heard of what they call the shale plays. So there's shale uh, places, a lot of them say um, along the Carolinas and, and inland a little bit. And they came up with new ways of drilling, which was almost kind of like sideways through the shale. And, there was, and they, the amazing discovery of how much natural gas they found created this oversupply in some way. And that's why today most people understand natural gas is relatively pretty cheap and it's not really very expensive anymore to heat our homes.
0: Um, natural gas is a commodity, you were a commodity broker what is a broker and why do you need one
1: a broker facilitates the 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 buy and the sell right so if you're a trader on an institutional level and you know there's a couple things that you are as a trader like obviously you're, you're looking to make a profit but you have also end users on the other side so you have a, a whole corporate finance department that maybe does business with uh, jcpnl first energy and you help that company you know, with, with what they have. And they obviously have power plants and they have natural gas. So the customer of, of that. So, so like, let's say I'm a bank and I, and I have some of that corporate finance stuff. I'm going to help that customer, you know, moderate their cash flows, right. And figure out, okay, I have a power plant and the life of that power plant may be 20 years. So we're going to talk about financing the power plant. We're going to talk about, you know, leveling out the, 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 you know, the profits of it. So they're going to hedge that because they're going to make a certain amount of power, but they're going to make more power than they probably need to supply their their local, you know, constituents and other people. So a bank is going to help sell that power on the open market, and part of that is selling power might also be buying or selling the natural gas that creates the power. So what we would do, it would take <laughs> the trader would would help that, you know, his his end user, but he didn't have the capability or the time to call. 20, 30, 50 different people and find out who had the best price to either buy or sell that. Right. So as a broker, I'm the middleman.
0: Meaning the... The the trader. Okay.
1: So the trader would just call the broker. Hey, you know, where's January natural gas? And I would quote the price based on the other guys who've already shown me, you know, where things are. And he would either say, you know, improve the bid or the offer of that price, or he would just say, you know, mine or yours, meaning he was willing to purchase at the price I quoted. Okay. So, like I said, th- so the reason we exist, or brokers existed, is to help the trader not waste time. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so we wanted to bring him, bring the trader the most, the tightest, most efficient market for whatever, whatever product he needed.
0: And how does that look now as opposed to in the 80s and 90s? And-
1: well, <clears throat> the way it looks now is it's, there's a lot more transparency. So the trader needs fewer brokers because the information is, is readily available on what we call exchanges or screens. So there's ICE, which is the International Commodities Exchange. There's Bloomberg, which quotes the prices on there too. And there's you know there's a couple other smaller uh, platforms which people can just post their price on that screen, so it's visible.
0: Does that help or hurt the life of a broker?
1: All oh, hurts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it hurts it quite a bit. Yeah. yeah, I mean you know in the old days we we held all the information. Now the information is pretty readily available. So you know you really have to rely much more upon your maybe level of expertise or your relationship and you know in my case i was also more of a broker on options so the options itself were much less likely to be posted on the screens because there is a delta variant you know where it moves you know with the market so it's like you can't really hold a static price unless mm-hmm. you, you quote that with a hedge
0: delta meaning change
1: delta is the rate of change in in the price of the option versus the amount of change in the actual underlying element right so if yeah, you know, if you had a stock that was $100 and you had an option that was a 50 delta, for every $1 that that stock moved, you would expect the option to move half of that, 50 right. cents.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um and so, where did you see that trailing off and what made you decide to not do that anymore?
1: <laughs> well, because you know, the market itself you know was shrinking a little bit and there were and that happened for a couple different reasons. Uh, a major part of it was—I don't know if you heard of Dodd-Frank. Uh, With dodd frank were you know were are uh, I you know, basically politicians who decided that uh, Wall Street was bad, and they needed to make everything what would be considered a future. So futures were much more, I guess, watched, or otherwise you had a report on it, as opposed to it just being what we used to call a swap, which is just an over-the-counter something that was easier to hide, maybe on a company's balance sheet. So because of that, the market itself you know traded less frequently right so a broker needs volume a the other part is we need participants well the participants all started to merge so as you know today, there's much you know fewer banks fewer hedge funds these these, all these some went out of business and some merged so over the years i saw my income you know just start to drop each year by a little bit and um, so
0: you saw regulation and um monopolization a little bit
1: uh, yeah, I mean, not yeah, not full monopolization because you know there's still a few participants, but you know the the market itself became uh, it it just was it was more difficult, I guess, for it to happen. And and as I got older, you know, it's certainly a, somewhat of a younger man's game. And I will tell you, I give you an example: like early on in my career, I would spend maybe maybe five to seven percent of my revenue back on customer, uh, you know, entertaining or taking people out or, or gifts or something. I'd say the end of the career, you know, that is upwards of 25 to 30%. You have brokers spending that money back on, you know, and sometimes not for great things. You know, you know sometimes mm. it's dinner, sometimes it's, you know, naughty things.
0: And why is that percentage so much higher? Is it because the whole net is lower or is it because relationships are worth more now because you need to outcompete a computer screen as far as somebody's friendship goes?
1: That's part of it, right? So if you, if you want to draw that person's eyes, that attention to you, as opposed to putting it on the screen, which doesn't charge you the brokerage that, the, you know, that a broker does... And the other part of it is, I you know I think it's you know it's greed. <laughs> There's you know these these traders uh, are under a tremendous amount of risk every day uh, and stress them meter for, for the risk they're taking. So uh, they'll they'll take a little something something. They'll take a little kickback from their broker, right? So go, and that'll that'll help even out their cash flow.
0: Right. So sort of like they're um, they're they're weighing the the cost benefit analysis and. A lot of times, the easiest way to reduce somebody's cost or increase their benefit is to be their friend and tell them that you'll uh, take them out and perhaps buy them cocaine later that evening.
1: I that's yeah that's I'll neither confirm nor deny. Yeah, not you specifically. Yes, but no. So yeah. So what 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 happens is someone is willing to do the job for less pay, right? Let's say if I'm a broker and I make, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a year, right? That's a that's a good number, right? So, would I be willing to spend a hundred thousand of that back on my clients for whatever it might be? You know, good things, bad things. So I'm only making four hundred thousand, but hey, that's still a pretty good number. Well, you know what? There's a guy behind me willing to do it for three hundred thousand, right? So now he's going to maybe have an extra fifty for himself, but he's going to spend one hundred and fifty on the client. So the client basically became a little bit of a a whore in the process of like, who's going to give me the most?
0: Oh. So since all of the brokers started to compete for between themselves and against the computers, um, maybe could you explain a little bit more exactly what the computerized option was now that we know what a broker is? like, Can they do the transaction completely without a broker, without a person at all?
1: absolutely yeah i mean they, they have well there's fewer people right so, so
0: when the trader sitting at their desk and and they're going all right i want to make this trade i want to find some information about this trade are there options like they have a number of of computer options and they're looking at the left and maybe they're looking at their um contacts on the right like what is the interface look like as far as the the trader is concerned
1: the interface would be probably four or five different computer monitor screens right that would that would basically be holding up the different exchanges and the price. So they would see you know the price of uh, the bid ask of whatever commodity it is they're they're looking at. On their desk also would probably be another section with probably 10 to 12 small black boxes which we used to call shout boxes. And all those would be from the broker. So what you'd hear all day long is guys like myself shouting down prices to these guys you know whether it be from a front month product all the way like a longer term you know strip or an option or whatever it might. So so for them it's a very very busy atmosphere. They're seeing all these monitors with the prices flashing at them, and then maybe one of the other monitors would also be instant messages you know typed to them, over and over on all the products that you know prices that they have, and then all these boxes of people shouting at them all day as well.
0: And so, they can sometimes choose to not talk to a person, like I'm trying. I'm trying to get at like what caused, like. I'm trying to frame this question right. They could sometimes use a shout box, right? And and talk to you. Yes. But then there's something else that they can do with this bid ask thing.
1: Right. So like why
0: the, don't they just do that all the time?
1: Because then the broker wouldn't take them out for sushi. Ice ICE has a representative maybe that works for them, right? So but they mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily they're not getting that same level of personal service.
0: So I guess what what I'm asking is what's the what's the broker rate for the computer like from just pressing the button on one side versus the other guy's broker rate that takes him out for sushi
1: well so our our rate was look you know let's say two and a half bucks a lot to so two dollars fifty cents a lot and they wouldn't have to pay that if they clicked on the screen and just you know and, and did that they, they, what
0: are they paying if they click on the screen
1: they pay all they pay the They'd pay the exchange fees, which they which they have to pay, the clearing fees, which they'd have to pay even if they execute with me. So our, our cost was on top of an addition. So it would be cheaper, more efficient for them to use the screen. The only time it makes sense for them is when my price is better than what's on the screen.
0: Right. Okay. Um, it sounds like you guys were screwed at the end there. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I mean, it, it was set up to cannibalize it to you, right? I mean, ICE was the big, you know, big bad wolf who came in and basically took the market, right? So once they put it on screens, but, you, you know, so what you, you lost was you, you lost some of the easier, the layup trades, right? You lost the front month stuff. You lost uh, what we, you know, we call index trades, things that were, had very, very little margin in them already. But you still had a shot at the options because they were more difficult to, to broker and you had a shot at longer-term strips of things, right? And that you would create with your relationship. When a guy needed, say, something, you know, a six-month strip two summers from now, that wasn't very tight on the screen. So the trader who's looking for that isn't going to find that on the screen. He needs to call the broker and say, "Where that? You know, where's that?"
0: Okay. So when you need um, in-depth analysis from somebody who who does this day in and day out, and uh, maybe if you need a friend, mm-hmm. um, are are they on their way out? Uh, are brokers done?
1: The brokers, I don't think will ever be done, but the you know the market gets smaller and smaller, and so you know, let's say for example, guys like myself that you know are near retirement or getting older, and they decide, hey, it's not worth it anymore. They're not. I didn't get replaced, you know. So uh-huh. now the desk of three is now a desk of two, and that happens, you know, throughout the the world of brokering.
0: So. There will be fewer brokers, but there will there will almost never be none.
1: You can't say almost never, but you know when I first started, like I said, it was uh, in interest rate swaps, and there was probably forty different broker shops, each with twenty five plus brokers brokering that product. Uh-huh. There are maybe eight to ten broker shops now, each with maybe ten or twelve guys on each desk. So it is. Quite a number fewer, but but I'm just giving that example because that that's one of the most simple products to put on a screen, and it's you know and it's, so it's like right. for them to still exist and making several hundred thousand years, it's pretty amazing.
0: Okay, um, is it better or worse for the world that uh, things are moving this way?
1: Uh, ultimately, I think it'll be better. It's more efficient, and I I just think and I think it's a positive thing that it's taking time because you have to give these workers or people you know training in, in different avenues to, to pursue you know to pursue a career right so you know what i i wouldn't recommend a younger person getting necessarily involved in what i was doing and so that's a good thing now they have the heads up like okay maybe that's not the career i want to do or or if i am going to pursue that career i'm going to realize how competitive it is and i'm going to realize i'm not going to make what i thought i was going to make
0: right or at least not in a healthy way um, you now own a franchise Uh, what is a franchise?
1: A franchise is a great way for a solopreneur to get involved in a business because it's all mapped out for you. So uh, a franchise is any type of business, and as you know, the most simple one in the world is McDonald's. And what it provides is a roadmap to a business for for the business owner. So everything is taken care of. They, they have the systems in place, you know, for the point of sale. They have the systems in place for how they're going to cook their food. And what the consumer gets on the other side is a uniform product. You know, what you want to, with a franchise is a person shows up here in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, and goes to McDonald's. They're going to get that Big Mac and it's going to be exactly as they expected. And that's going to happen if they are in Missouri, if they're in California, if they're anywhere else. So there's, there's twofold. Like the, the franchise helps the consumer and it helps the business owner.
0: Because you're kind of piggybacking off of the brand relationship that they've already created with that customer.
1: Right. There's a certain level of, of expectation, right? You, you know, and you might, sure, you might go to a bad McDonald's and you're like, oh, this, you know, this Big Mac sucks. Right. But generally speaking, you're going to get the same product.
0: Um, and how much does that generally cost?
1: It really depends on on the product and, and how big you're gonna go with it. Uh, a company like, like McDonald's, because they are so successful and you're nearly guaranteed success is gonna be very, very expensive. Over a million dollars. Same thing would say at Dunkin' Donuts. There are smaller franchises such as myself that may only, you know, cost anywhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars to buy into the system. You know, and that mm-hmm. and that what you get out of that is your initial marketing material. You get some training and you know, you, you get uh, the help of, of the of the corporate uh, world, there to coach you through the process.
0: Cool. Um, what is your franchise?
1: My franchise is a company called Schooley Mitchell. They're the largest uh, cost reduction consulting company in North America, and they've been around since 1998. And what we do is we go into companies, really any size companies. I mean, a little bigger the better. And we help them, re- you know, increase their profitability and revenue from a cost reduction standpoint. And we do that on telecom, waste management, small packet shipping, electronic payment processing, and sometimes utilities if they're large enough.
0: So a large company uh, generally doesn't do everything themselves. Almost every company is going to have a relationship with the vendors, such as um, people who take out their trash, people who process their credit cards. Um, and so what you do is you look around for um, better relationships with the vendors, um, maybe even the same vendor, just a better price.
1: Right. What happens a lot of times, you know, a business will set up and here it is eight, 10 years later. And they're just they're concerned with, you know, increasing their revenue and making their profits off of selling more, uh, marketing better. And they, they just maybe they didn't think about it. So that dumpster that they've had out back, maybe it's been increased. They weren't even really paying attention. Eight, 10 percent a year. Uh, they're not chopping it around. Right. So they're, they're just they're paying the costs because they're so concerned with accelerating their sales. And they forgot to look at some of the other things. And, and if companies, same thing, if they're down, if they've been around for 10 years, they probably haven't looked at their phones. These days, no one really has landlines anymore. So when I go into a, a corporate office and I see these old landlines ringing, I, I start just laughing So because everything's voice over internet. Mm-hmm. And they can pay a fraction of the cost, get brand new equipment. It really is a big help. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's funny. You'll see people are initially skeptical, but then so happy afterwards.
0: Do you, because you make a portion of the money when uh, when you save people money for three years, right?
1: Right. We split this. We split the savings for three years.
0: Do you make money if you convince somebody that they just don't need their landlines anymore?
1: No, I, I don't make any money unless I find savings for the clients.
0: So unless you find them a new contract for the... Right.
1: Right. Unless they, unless they can pay less for whatever product they're getting with at least the same service, if not better.
0: Yeah. I wonder if just like sort of as a joke, like how many offices you could walk into and be like, Do you even use that phone? Like we had phones at the at the real estate office and there was one at there's one or two at every desk and nobody used it.
1: Well that that's part of you see part of what I do is, is optimization, which is the use part of it, right? So, yeah. you know, some of it's the use and some of it is just reducing the actual price of, of whatever it is you're using. So that's exactly the point, especially these days where a lot more people are working from home. Uh, we help the clients, you know, decide how many phone lines do they really need? Like mm-hmm. I said, there's, there's empty desks in these offices.
0: So rather than having a phone line at every single desk, maybe you'll just find a voice over internet option just for the front desk.
1: Well, well yeah, well, in, in that case, a lot of times what we like to do is there's a voice over internet option and you could still have just as many numbers, but you don't need the physical phone. They can, you yeah. know, a client can, you know, a salesman can actually now have that, an app on his phone where that business line will ring right on his phone.
0: Yeah, Vonage does a lot of things like that.
1: Yeah, Vonage is one of our vendors. And, and the important thing, the difference between going to Vonage, right, and saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, if you're trying to do this yourself, you know, hey, I want to put this together. Or you go to a guy who just does telecom, you know, they're they're just going to give you their price. And on top of that, if you go to another sales guy, he's getting a kickback from Vonage. Whereas what I do is I vie all these guys against each other, all the vendors against each mm-hmm. other for the best possible price. So I never receive any money from any vendor, no kickbacks at all from the other side.
0: Right. And uh, as we mentioned before, kickbacks can lead kind of like down a dark path.
1: Right. That's exactly why I didn't want to be involved. So the two most important reasons that I took this you know, particular franchise you know, was there's no upfront fees. So I don't go into somebody and say, you know, give me 5000 dollars give me 10000 dollars to look at. So I felt very confident. I can go in and say, hey, w- w- if we find your savings, I share in it. If I don't, I walk away, no, you know, no questions asked, no money ever. Right. And then the other part is I can confidently say I got you the best possible price in the market without being, you know,
0: helped along. As as you might say, you can't afford not to do it. Right.
1: <laughs> I say my Schoolie Mitchell tagline is you know, business owners know what they are paying for these services. Schooling Mitchell knows what you should be paying.
0: All right. Nice. Um, moving on, uh, since we only have 15 minutes here, it's 1226. Um We, as a family, do not uh, go to church or practice religion. Where do you think we go when we die?
1: <laughs> it's sad, sad to say, because uh, I I just think you're dead. hmm I don't think you go anywhere. I think it's, uh, I think unfortunately it's just over.
0: You don't have anything else to say about that?
1: I, because there's, there's no, any concept you try to put with it. Like people would ask me this question, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, it's like, you know, just lights out. I go, no, it's, it's the, it's, it's, it's nothing.
0: It's just nothing. like it was before you were born.
1: Exactly. It, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. You don't exist. You're just over. Now, your body, of course, deteriorates depending on what you do. Sure. It might, you know, might, you know, go back and help the soil of the earth if that's what you so choose to do but as far as you know you you're gone
0: um and so now that i know nothing happens at least nothing exciting um what do you think i should do with my life
1: well i think you should live it i think the most important thing people need to do is live their life to the fullest be the best you know, you, you can be, so to speak. And that's, that goes back to the winning the birth lottery of being here in the U S the world is literally your oyster. You, you can do whatever you like. Um, and I'm, and you know, while I'm not necessarily religious, like I don't believe there's 10 commandments, but there's certainly four or five, you know, I don't think mm-hmm. you should kill anybody. I don't think you should steal. I don't think you should covet thy neighbor's wife or goods or anything like that. So I think you, just because there's no reward at the end, doesn't mean you shouldn't live a good life. You shouldn't be a good person. And, you know, so that's that's how I like to sure. live my life.
0: Sure, you're just kind of reducing it to what you see right in front of you.
1: Right, and I, but I, and I think that religion was created to, to keep people in line. I think that was the point of it. They saw people that were corruptible, and they're like, oh, yeah? Well, you're going to go to hell.
0: That yeah, the problem with religion, uh, because people created it a lot of times, is that um, it comes with the, a lot of the same pitfalls that people have where they like power a little bit too much. They like to talk a little bit too much. Um, they like to make it about themselves. And so that can kind of run away with itself. Um, and I think that's when you end up with um, churches that, is big, that are as big as they are. With, with There's a lot of money running through them sometimes. And uh, oh,
1: The Catholic Church is the is richest institution in the world.
0: It's um, It raises some questions, and I would be interested to see a, a heavy audit of that. But um, if there is a God, I'm... I'm not sure that that's exactly what it looks like.
1: <laughs> well, and if there is a God, do you really think He doesn't want you to go to church if you were divorced? You think you think He doesn't want you to be involved in the church if you're gay? Yeah, it just seems silly to me.
0: Yeah, that that seems like one of those um, one of those things that just happens when you let people be in charge and not God, if He if He exists.
1: Well, parents use you know the, for kids during Christmas. What do we do? We hang over your head, Santa. That that's right, good, right. Well, that's what.
0: That's what they do for old people.
1: That's what the that's what the elders did for you know for everybody. To, they held this God over your head and like you got to be good.
0: The fear of God. Um, moving on, to, uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned divorce, without making this too personal. <laughs> I've heard that fifty percent of marriages end in divorce. Can you tell me why do people get married?
1: Well, I, I think that uh, people get married because they are. Optimistic, You know, I think if you did a poll of, of, of everyone and asked them, you know, where they thought they were, say, on, on a scale of like, you know, did they think they were better looking than average, average, or less than better looking, right? Most people would say they're better looking than average, and that's just not possible, right? Hmm. So I would say most people go into things and, and you know, and they're optimistic and they think, you know, they think it's going to be good. And it, they've also been taught that's, that's you know, the, the proper way to go about things, right? You're going to get married, you're going to have children, you're going to move on. Uh, and I would say honestly, for myself, and as I said, I'm optimistic. If if I was if I was given the question at the time when I you know when I first got married, they said if you get divorced, you have to give up everything you have, walk out of the house, the relationship with nothing on your back. That's all you get. I would have said I'll do it. I would have. I just never never because you don't. I didn't never entered into something thinking the possibility that it would be over. You know, unfortunately, it was, but I still went into it not considering the fact that it would ever be over.
0: And sort of, it's like a. Um... It. It's sort of like the 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 risks are so high that like, it wouldn't be a, um, you wouldn't really trust anybody, if they didn't agree to it, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to trust them with your life because, like it is sort of your life that you're giving away if it doesn't work out so like that's why it's the, like the highest form of a relationship,
1: on that side and then I, I think the other part of it too is is you society set it up that way to be better to be married you know the way it's set up as far as you get to you know have health benefits you know your company doesn't you know doesn't extend a health benefit to a non-spouse you taxes when i file jointly married i save more on my taxes than i would if i were filing separately single
0: right um and now i'm going to run through some some more questions now um i do have to use the bathroom uh, it's my first podcast. I forgot to use the restroom. Mm. How are you doing on time?
1: i got we get 15 minutes. Okay. Do you want to run pee quick or?
0: No, no, it's okay. Right. Um, there are many things that can kill us and sometimes it feels like almost everything can. What positive role does alcohol have in society? Do you think?
1: I don't think it has any positive role at all.
0: Do you think that it has like. There are a lot of ideas that have happened at, I recently turned 21 and I uh, went to the bar and I had a good time. And uh, like all of the overuse cases aside, do you think society would be just as well off if they didn't have the ability to go into a tavern and sort of relieve all of their baggage? Um, and like kind of mix in a very social way.
1: Well, I, but I mean, couldn't they still do that? Couldn't you still do that at a community center? And you know, like, would be like, I'd say I, I think the, I think society overall would be better off if alcohol didn't exist.
0: I think perhaps now I just, uh, looking at it sort of like from the outside in and now from the inside out. I do agree that like they should be able to um, just go to a community center and, and really get things going. But there's something about, um, I don't know, It's I, I don't want to say poison, but like changing your neurochemistry to a little bit of the degree where everybody has the same sort of thing going on. Like Like I see the same thing when everybody's playing basketball or like tennis. Um, if everybody's like on the same drug, which is like fitness or like alcohol, people tend to blend a little bit together than, than if they're just like in a doctor's office. Um, and I wonder what sort of butterfly effect that has.
1: I I mean, I'm sure some positives come out of it.
0: And a lot of it happens in business too. Like you'll see a lot of business mixers, like people like are consuming that. So I'm trying to look at it like I'm trying to steel man it, you know.
1: Well, the thing is, what you see, it does happen a lot in business mixers, and I say it basically lets people take their guard down a little bit and maybe more more relaxed. But I I, I just think that there there would have been something else to replace that. It, you know, alcohol was one way to do it, but I think alcohol, given its effect, you know, doesn't affect everybody the same. So when you say you're in a bar and like, oh, everyone's the same. That's same true. Drug, it's not because there's there's one guy who fell down drunk at the end, and there's maybe another one who only had you know one drink, or it doesn't matter. So I, I, you know, my pro I guess my problem isn't alcohol, but the problem is, is once you, you know, let Pandora, you know, open Pandora's box, that's now you have, now you're dealing with it. So if there was a way for it to be always moderate, sure. I'd be behind. It.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a bit of a wild card question. Um, but we're, we're nearing the end here. I have two more questions. Okay. You have, uh, three sons. What is it like to have a child? And in what way do you think your life would be different if you ever had a daughter?
1: Oh, boy. that would, I'd have a lot less money, I think. <laughs> um, it's so hard to explain what it's like to have a child, but it is it is the most miraculous. And, you know, as I'm not religious, it's funny to use that word. But it, it's the most amazing, wonderful thing in the world. That, you know, it's, you, until you have a child, you can't even explain love. You really can't. You know, when I say I love my wife or I love somebody else... It is nothing compared to when you see this small person that you've created. You know, it almost does make you believe in God. You know, right? you, you know you're two people and you, th- you think about the, the you know, the, the biology behind the whole thing. It almost makes you say, hey, there's got to be something. But for me, it, it's just the most amazing experience watching my boys, you know, grow from, from that tiny age. And it was amazing also having more than one watching how they interact and engage with each other. And then, you know, the different types, you know, I think overall they're very similar, but also very different. And then as far as a girl, I I feel like my personality would have lent itself to being just completely manipulated by this little (laughs) tiny person. So assuming
0: that the woman was interested in manipulating you or the girl.
1: Well, listen, every you guys, you know, boys want to manipulate as well. I just I don't I'm not as susceptible to that manipulation as I would Uh. be to this cute little girl.
0: Yes. Um it is. It is worrisome. I, I'm sure that you, are you wouldn't have been the first to fall victim to that.
1: No, I'm, I would not. There's plenty out there, and but you know that's that's all good. I mean, you know, daddy wants to give every, you know his kids everything, and I think you know that as, you know there's there hasn't been many no's that you've heard in your life. So imagine if you know as sure. a girl. So
0: I wonder if girls just generally ask more questions. <laughs>
1: that's probably true as well.
0: <laughs> um. Since you are uh, my dad, and some people look towards their father for um, this question, maybe you can tell me now, um, what is the meaning of life?
1: The meaning of life to me is to be fulfilled. And that can be in many, many different ways. So that's why I said earlier, I said the best thing you can do is live your life. And, and that's, that's important. So no matter where you are, who you are, or what you're doing, live your life. You know, get up every day on the, on the, on sort of the right side of the bed and, you know, go out there, try something new, you know, challenge yourself in, in, in any ways you can meet new people and overall just, you know, be kind, like make a difference, leave a little bit of a mark, leave, leave the world in a slightly, slightly better place than when you found it. And that to me is the meaning of life is just feeling fulfilled, feeling at the end of the day when you, instead of worrying about, am I going to see the face of God? When you're when you're feeling those final breaths, you know you can kind of think to yourself, "Did I make the world a little better place? Did I make a difference? Did I make a positive impact?" And that to me, the meaning of life. And, and sure, maybe it's just over and it doesn't happen from there. But if I feel like if if people can close their eyes at the end of the day or at the end of their life and feel like that, that is the meaning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Riley. This is a pleasure. This
0: has been the first podcast. Thanks for testing it out for me.
1: Absolutely. And this is quite a nice operation for those of you listening. Very impressive. And I think you should come and interview with my son, Riley, who is intuitive, smart and just overall fantastic.
0: There you go. Thank you.